Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in Ercilo Ventiuno. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more what we explore together with your host, Emmanuel Padilla, and Dr. Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. Part of who we are. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Teresa Delgado to talk about the personal dynamics of the diaspora, the family motivations that drove Dr. Delgado's research, and how to recover the links between island and barrio. Dr. Delgado tells us why literature was so important to her decolonial theology, and we get into a little Puerto Rican history. Elizabeth and I also share stories about some of our family to understand the Puerto Rican colonial condition. So sientas en casa, make yourself at home. Let's get started. Dr. Delgado, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with, with both of you. Yeah. Before we go, before we go too far ahead, I know that congratulations are in order. You just made a transition over to St. John's University. You'll be serving as Dean of St. John's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences now. Congratulations. That's a big deal. Thank you so very much. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I've been there uh, this week, a couple of days. Uh, June 1st was my, my first day. Uh, there's wonderful people, wonderful institution, uh, and I'm I'm really I really do feel blessed to be a part of it. I also blessed to have been a part of the Iona College community for 17 years, and yeah. in many ways, you know, the book that um, that we're going to talk about today uh, really came came to its fruition. You know, while um, you know it, it it had been a work in progress, but it was while I was at Iona that it it actually. Uh, you know, came to fruition. So I'm very grateful for that community for giving. That's me amazing. This. Let me say that St. John's might have the the biggest collection of Puerto Rican theologians now, with, with Bobby <laughs> out there as well. Hey, there's a little group of you out there at St. Yes, John's. Yes, yes, that, that's true. Jean Pierre Ruiz and yeah, Jean Pierre, yeah. Yeah, so I'm a little envious of those students. I didn't have that when I was when I was going to Bible college or university. That, that many. Let me also say for the audience, uh, Doctora Delgado has several uh, publications, including uh, Augustine and Social Justice, which she co-edited with John Duty. Uh, Duty, is that right? Yes, that's right. And Kim pa Paffenroth, uh, Reinterpreting Virtues and Values in the U.S. Public Sphere. And she has the book that we're going to be talking about a little bit today, A Puerto Rican Decolonial Theology, which I really, really enjoyed. Before we continue, let me also welcome those who are first-time listeners to the Mestizo Podcast. If you're new to this space, this is a mixed space. So we say we're from Nidaki, Nidaya, not from here or from there. And we're excited that you're joining us. I also want to tell you about some of the other stuff that World Outspoken does. We also include and have available online courses that you can take to dive deeper into the subjects that we're addressing here on the podcast. Those include... Uh, everything from issues of language, concerns with cultural change, and issues related to cultural identity. You can check out our courses at learn.worldoutspoken.com. That's learn.worldoutspoken.com. So you can take classes that dive deeper into the subjects that we address here on the podcast and throughout World Outspoken's content. 
You can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can do that on Spotify, Apple, and all the rest of the places, and leave us a review. Let me remind you that that really does help. And so if you subscribe to the podcast, you can leave us a review telling us how you enjoyed the show, questions you might have, doubts that you might want to share. You can follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, at, and Twitter, at World Outspoken. And I have a question for Elizabeth. I, I, was, I was told that I needed to ask this question. Uh, I was told, Elizabeth, how many reviews, I was told to ask you, how many reviews would it take, reviews of our podcast would it take, for World Outspoken to start a TikTok and for you to be the first person to do a video for the TikTok? That's, that's what I was told to ask. How many reviews would it take for Elizabeth to end up on TikTok? Who on earth would have asked you such a question? I, I can't say. I can't divulge. <laughs> um, make it 50. Oh, we're already at 50. Does that mean we're starting a TikTok? Or are you hey, saying you want 50 it. more? Let's go for 50 more. Okay, so we need to get to 100 reviews. And then Elizabeth will be the first TikToker for World Outspoken. Let's go for it. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. 100 <laughs> reviews. Hey, if you have questions about the show or want to join the conversation, you can do that by leaving us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. All right. Let's get into it. Uh, Dr. Delgado, I want to ask you first about the dedicatorio of the book, the, the dedication at the at the very beginning. Uh, I don't think I've ever asked a question about a dedication, but this one is beautifully written. And so I'm going to read it here, actually. And then I want to talk about it a little bit. You, you dedicate the book to all Boricuas from every time and every place who in one way or another have inspired you by living into freedom, regardless of political status or personal circumstances, standing with beauty and grace when the world has said, we are nothing more than colonial subjects. This book you say is my love letter to you. Can you name some of the Boricuas that inspired you? You say that you know, you're inspired by them. What are their stories? Yeah, well, well, thank you for that, you know, for lifting that up. To me, uh, this this whole project was very much a, a process of, uh, it, was a, it was really a, an expression of love um, in, in so many ways. And I think, you know, the, the authors that I lift up in this work you know, Esmeralda, Santiago, and Pedro Juan Soto, Rosario Ferre, are have been those influential and inspirational voices for me. Um, you know, I think I'm not alone in the experience that I had in school that I didn't really learn about anything about Puerto Rico or, or any any Puerto Rican figures at all. Um, until I started to explore much later. And then, of course, it brings, you know, it brought up a, a feelings of anger first. That the first feeling was feelings of anger that how, why is it that all of this important history, all of these important people have been unknown to me? 
and then you know coming to an understanding that that's exactly what colonialism does that it separates us from the truth of who we are and it severs us from from community it severs us from our language you know it it is um it is a constant process of severing and and in doing so uh we are left in pieces so the remembering is really that it is a remembering like a, that of this being dismembered and remembering ourselves so all of so that the the people i can't even begin to name them all right i mean because there are they are so many and many of them are a part of also my own family um you know my 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 family who you know my uncle austin torres and frank torres you know who were some of the the first puerto rican lawyers and judges in in new york city um and and then other you know smaller family stories and then you know even you elizabeth you've been an inspiration to me in the field of religion and theology and as a mentor so and and the students have been inspirational to me you know, the times that we've had conversation with emmanuel so it's i can't even begin to describe the many ways and all of the uh the different people who've been inspirational i can name all the kind of classic names right you know the 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 julia de burgos and you know betances and all of that but those are you know we 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 hope we all know about those but it's the everyday people that have been inspirational to me and that's what i wanted that dedication to capture let's talk about what inspiration means because when we are dismembered inspiration for me becomes how it is that tissues grow in between the different parts and that begin to put them together right um it's not just having all the parts coming back but it's it's growing them together in relationship to one another and that for me is what inspiration looks like right when you when you can see this person's life and hear that person's voice and um hear a sueño a dream that someone begins to put together and a call to that sueño of, uh for us to bring our work to that that is the tissue of of what begins to stand for the freedom that you're talking about so what does inspiration look like for you what does it what's the power of inspiration mm. well thank you for that question because as you were speaking i was thinking about the right the, just the just to having that visualization of pieces being brought together and the connective tissue mm -hmm. and part of that is also all the scar tissue that develops mm -hmm. right that we can't we can't separate the mending we the, the mending and melding together and the scar tissue that also becomes now a part of it part and a part of us so that we are the wounds are there and we perhaps can function 
and, and we do so in the midst of knowing that that there are maybe maybe will be some limitations to our movement because the because that scar tissue will always be a part. So how what does inspiration look like to me? Um, many things. There, I I write poetry, and part of my there are things that I hear and that I see um, that may seem minor, but to me, they, they speak in a way that, um, that I, then I need to pour it out somehow. And that, that's a, a, is a process of inspiration. Um, being by the water. I spent a week. We're Islanders, of course. Yes, of course. And I, and I actually just, just this morning, um, I was at on my campus and I received a, a gift from our office of mission and ministry. And it's a picture of, uh, of students that I took to Puerto Rico in 2019 for a sort of like a mission trip, a, a social justice trip. And we were at, in El Yunque um, doing some, trail clearing because even even in 2019 18 months after hurricanes Irma and Maria there was still so much destruction and devastation that I'm looking at that picture and it's bringing up all of those emotions and that is inspirational to me because I see those young people um, as the promise of our future if they have the tools. I mean, they're all holding different tools, but but if they have the tools of the, of the mind and of the heart to be able to make real, you know, substantive change in the world, that to me, that trip was an inspiration. You know, what's interesting about this conversation of the dedication of this book, right? That it's about the everyday Boricua, right? And that inspiration is about this remembering. It's it's starting to build the connective tissues and restoring. It's interesting that you raise that photo as an example of it, because it's a photo of a of a trip about social justice. And what is justice if not setting things back to right, mending that which is broken, right? And so the connection here between inspiration and justice seems to me to be a really important one, especially, especially given. Um, some of the other things that you mentioned, Doctora Delgado, you mentioned music, you mentioned uh, the everyday person, like you said earlier. And last night, uh, I, I don't know if my voice is sounding groggy or not, but last night I went to a Juan Luis Guerra concert here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my wife treated me to it uh, in honor of finishing a year of PhD study. Praise the Lord for wives who are really thoughtful. Um, and to that. Right. And I remember I looked around at one point and you know, we're several generations deep here in Chicago in terms of Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, even the Mexicans who have been here in Chicago have been here for a long time at this point, as they have been in New York. And I looked around the room and I, I looked around at people who probably had a full work day, had a hard work week, and they got there last night and they danced with freedom in their feet and heaven on their face, right? Just the, 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 the poetry of the moment was... Yes incredible to me inspiring in the ways that it was a kind of remembering Mm. and a remembering of some classic bachata and classic merengue and and i i really thought that was that was 
a really important moment to pause and to reflect on. Uh, and so I sat there and, and just literally sat there and looked around the, the audience for a while. I forget Juan Liguerra. I want to see these folks. These are the ones that are inspiring to me. Um, I, I want to ask about that, though, because you also raised the question of scar tissue. And there, there are two questions I have. I'll, I'll just ask one here because I don't want to speak too much. But one of the scar tissues that develops in, in your story is the kind of silence that happens over yes. years and years and years of being dismembered, right? <laughs> Family members who are who are not spoken about, you know, that we don't talk about Bruno. In your case, there's a grandfather that on your dad's side that is literally not talked about. Um, I know that you, you mentioned it in the book that there was a long sustained silence that I'm going to turn here to the page that eventually you broke. Mm -hmm. You went and, and you called, right? You, mm -hmm. you called and, and met with... Uh, is it Tia Judy? Am I remembering her name correctly? Same, same, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tia Judy and, and your grandfather, Gregorio, you, you mm -hmm. finally had an opportunity to speak to them um, after long years of silence. I want to know, that happens, I think, in every Puerto Rican family where there are, you know, these members who get cut off, exiled, you know, the relationship is broken. I've got, I've got an aunt and an uncle who don't talk to each other and live about a block away from each other. Mm -hmm. they're siblings and they don't talk to mm -hmm. each other mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. how do we how do we learn to to speak again after cycles and cycles and cycles of silence mm. oh that's a that's a deep 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 question i can share with you what what pro kind of propelled me to speak and and one of the reasons was it had to it had to do with the con the connective tissue the the very literal connective tissue that i had within me that i was pregnant with my first child and that that pregnancy and thinking about the the future that would be un that would be birthed it made me think more deeply about the past that she would not have any connection to because I didn't and I couldn't give that to her. And I, so I had to make a choice and the choice was, do I kind of step into this void or do I step into a space I was fearful. I didn't know if it was going to make my father angry because he was the one who, you know, it was, it was uncharted territory. And he was the one who had maintained that silence. I didn't understand all of the dynamics either because again, they weren't shared. So stepping into that, that space, I had, had to kind of muster up the courage. And if, if it were not for my daughter um, yet to be born, I probably would not have mustered up the courage, but I did it for her. At least that was my external excuse. <laughs> I did it for her, but it was really for me. And, and in some way I couldn't separate out what was for her and for me. 
because we were of the same being at that moment <laughs> as I was eight months uh, or, or six months pregnant with her at that time. So it took that, it was courage, but also this sense that I can't, I, I, it would be an injustice to give birth to a future that didn't have a connection to the past. And I was trying to make, to mend and be, and be the connective tissue between the past and the future. There's another piece that you mentioned earlier that I think is also um, an important connective tissue. And you talked about an anger, your first response being anger. And then uh, when you showed the picture, you talked about um, doing social justice. And for me, the two really come together. Mm -hmm. um, because we need the anger to do the justice. Because justice is pushing back against injustice. And you need that kind of force with you to be able to do that. Anger is a wonderfully channeled energy. When you're kept down, you have a, if you have a bunch of people sitting on you, the only way to come up from that is to have that, ah, that anger that pulls you up and says, no, you're not going to be sitting on me. And to find history, historical pieces, whether they are personal, whether they are communal, brings one into one's own. It brings you into your voice. It brings you out of the silence. To come out of silence, you need that something, that stuff, that knowledge, right? So that then it has substance, what you are to say, and it has reason for which you say it, for which you express it, because it's not just, you know, saying, it's expression different, an array of expressions, as you mentioned earlier. So say something about the anger, as well as the silence, and how important it is. Oh, it is, it is. Thank you for raising that. And I have to say that I, I am very, very grateful for these past couple of years. I've been involved with faculty, with some African-American, Latinx uh, faculty at Iona who have been engaged in really deep uh, anti-racism conversations. And it has expanded out to some of the white faculty one of the things that we've I've learned through that process is how the, the difference between anger and rage, mm -hmm. very and important, the, and the way in which anger can be that uh, it can be a source of inspiration for others. It can be a an expression of one's inter, inner inspiration that emerges as this a, a righteous anger and how different that is from rage that is often redirected internally because of the learned voicelessness that marginalized people 
colonized people have had to, out of survival for our own sense of, of being of protection and, and defensiveness, that we, we, we've had to learn and perfect our own voicelessness. And it's like, it's that scream that no one hears in a, in a nightmare. Um, and I've had to, I've had to come to my own realization about the, the work of anger, the necessity of anger and the destructiveness of rage that, that anger channeled properly can, can be that energy, that force, um, that, that courageous energy, that courageous force that works against the learned voicelessness that has, that had been so part of my, my own parents upbringing. I learned it because it was all around me, right? I learned to be more comfortable with silence and not speaking. De eso no se habla, right? That's what they would say. Oh, de eso yeah. no se habla. There's also something, um, there's different kinds of anger that are empowering, right? It's depending on how you need to use that anger. And I remember a book written a long time ago about um, community organizing in Texas by the uh, working communities, Latinx working communities of Texas, and it was called Cold Anger. And it talks about, um, <laughs> right, cold anger. And it talks about anger can consume. Just like you put a log in a fire and it goes, and it consumes it. But if you have cold anger, it's like the electrons that move to turn on a light. They move very, very slowly. And so when you burn anger in a cool way, you burn it nice and slow, it becomes very empowering because I think that as Puerto Ricans, sometimes we're really good at el momento, el impacto, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We get inspired, phew, we go off, we have these short fuses. I mean, we can, we can change the world in two seconds if we need to, mm -hmm. right? Um, this, this, uh, this inspirational anger hits us. And we're, we're very, uh, we can move the world. But then to maintain that, to create a strategy yes. that is long standing and continues mm -hmm. to chip away at the things that can't be blasted. Mm -hmm. That I think is something to be learned together. Yes, and those, those I are agree. The things, those are the things that then bring the change that we really want. Because, like for example, right now in Puerto Rico, so you had the and uh, no, 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 uh, no offense here, uh, Emmanuel, for those who call you Ricky, but you know they asked mm -hmm. the governor to step down. Yeah, vete Ricky, vete, right? And mm -hmm. so all of these, you know, half a million people come up. And they're marching the streets night after night, night after night, until finally he leaves. And then, now what? Mm -hmm. Now what? Mm -hmm. Well, now we continue to have to deal with a very corrupt group of governors 
who, you know, people who are in there. Um, and we continue to see our freedoms and the economic abuse taking place. Well, we need the long lasting, the strategy, the chipping away at what that corruption means and what it does and how it continues to be connected to money in the United States, even money with people in Congress that continues to strip the island in so many different ways, yeah. right? So we need that cold anger for us to be truly um, mobilized and sustained in the decolonizing pieces. Yeah. As we think about this idea of cold anger, we're going to take a moment here, give the audience a break. Uh, we'll take a listening break here. Then when we come back, we're going to talk to Doctora Delgado a little bit more about how she turned that anger into listening, uh, how she turned it into listening to the stories written by novelists, how she used it to, to spark her imagination toward uh, reimagining and then prophesying freedom, which is the subtitle of her book, how we might turn that anger into prophesying. Let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll have further discussion. So we've been talking with Doctora Delgado about her Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican decolonial theology. I got to make sure to say that word in there. And the subtitle is Prophesy Freedom, that active prophesying of freedom, right? And one of the things that I want to backtrack and think about here is it's interesting to think about who we have present in this conversation. Uh, all three of our families arrived to the U.S. as part of the whole Operation Bootstrap. Uh, you know, we have some people who listen to the show who are not Puerto Rican. So let me just remind you, the U.S. took colonial possession of Puerto Rico in 1898. And then uh, after World War I, trying to industrialize the island, they executed something called Operation Bootstrap in the early 1900s This started. That caused, because there, there was this assumption that the island was too populated, that caused a, a mass exodus of Puerto Ricans into mainly major cities on the East Coast. My family arrived to Washington Heights in 1951. Uh, Dr. Adelgado, your family also arrived in the 1950s to New York City. Elizabeth, yours in the late 1940s, so some of the earliest arrivals as part of Operation Bootstrap. But uh, all three of our families then have lived post that on this side of the whole Islander diaspora fence. And there have been some things that have happened on the diaspora side that we've been talking about, the kind of anger that we're severed from the language, being able to speak Spanish as fluently as we need so that we can recapture books, even knowing which books to read, right? And which authors are our own, right? even knowing their names and even some of our personal histories that we've already named. Uh, Dr. Delgado already named it in the first segment. But there were some things that were happening on the island that were making this sever severing of the Puerto Rican people even more complex and more difficult to remember. And I wonder, Elizabeth, if you can share just briefly some of the things that were happening on the island even that were making the severance even more severe. 
Um, starting in the 1950s, there was a nationalist group of Puerto Ricans who um, decided not to be silent anymore and to rise up against the um, tremendous injustices of people taking over their land and making them slaves working uh, in sugarcane uh, on their land. And so, um, and actually they, they changed the economy of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico had tobacco, had uh, coffee, had other things that it exported to other countries. They took over who we could exchange goods with and who we couldn't and just made it all sugar. The Domino Sugar people created their empire that way. And they really um, were abusive. And so the nationalist movement begins and it turns into a mini revolution. And um, there were massacres that took place during that time. The CIA took over. The FBI was there all the time. Uh, there's an interesting book about um, called um, The War Against All Puerto Ricans. It's very interesting. Uh, Puerto Ricans were citizens of the United States. And so it speaks about how the U.S. Uh, takes action against its own citizens. They moved the uh, National Guard into the island, etc. And then they banned anyone. You couldn't even unfurl a Puerto Rican flag on the island. You couldn't own one. Uh, you were punished for that. Uh, there was a law against it. And so with all of that being said, they wanted to cover up all of what was taking place in the 1950s. They wanted to make sure that they silenced the voices of the people who wanted this freedom and the torture that took place of persons in, in prisons, et cetera, was horrendous. And so you couldn't, from that point on, a Puerto Rican could not write Puerto Rican history. Those books were banned. Um, professors were um, given leave of their positions at the University of Puerto Rico for doing so. Loida Figueroa was one of those persons, and she moved uh, to New York City. And it is there that in a Puerto Rican studies department, I'm able to read her book. I'm reading the book on the plane and I come to Puerto Rico and my family sees that book and they close all the windows and they say, we can't talk about this book here. This book has been banned. So we're going to read it at night, real hushed. And I had to read the book in a whisper for them to hear it. Um, churches have been involved in some of the uh, freedom pieces because of issues of injustice. And they were infiltrated also by people who um, were a part of the CIA. At one time, a pastor went to baptize someone and before he got baptized right there in the baptistry, he, he lifted up a bank book that he had of all the payments that he had received for being a spy. And he said, I'm no longer a spy. I've been in this church too long and now I understand what, what the power of the gospel is about and the freedom of the people. And he made that connection. So these things have been going on over and over on the island, which is why we don't have writings. Uh, things have been um, pushed down, suppressed, um, even theologians, right? Because it, the church was also affected. Um, so it's important that we understand that as Dr. Teresa continues to speak, because we have to understand that this silence was not just a personal thing. It's a, it's a political piece that's yeah. taking place. 
this. Well, and I have proof positive to this. Uh, Dr. Delgado, you turn in your book to literature, to Puerto Rican novelists and poets and, and playwrights to do theological discussions with them. I've tried since reading your book, I've tried to find those same poets playwrights, novelists here in Chicago to purchase those books and read them. I've gone to maybe a dozen bookstores and have come up empty-handed, completely empty-handed, not a mm. single one of the names. And so to Elizabeth's point about how this goes missing, how this gets lost, uh, I have proof positive of it. I've tried already uh, an honest effort. So, so talk to us a little bit. You, you have the CUNY Center in New York that offers some of these archives. And so you, you've got some resources available to you in New York that have been quite helpful. But why turn your attention to literature? Why was that an important aspect of your theological task? Yes. I, so for me, the, so, so I, I've always loved stories. Um, I've always loved uh, novelists. So there was already this affinity to storytelling and storytellers because to me, I, I always felt that a, a, a really good novelist and um, you know, right behind me is my you know, kind of library of all these, all, all, these are all novels, actually. Um, my theological library is elsewhere, but these are all the no novels. Um, Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and, um, you know, so many others. I would read these stories and they were about other people and other places and other times. Uh, distinct from you know, experiences very distinct and different from my own. And yet they were speaking to me. They, they were particular and yet they transcended that particularity to reach into my soul. And in some ways I thought, wait a minute, isn't that what the gospel does? That in some way the gospel, the gospel is a very particular story about a particular person in a time and place that is somehow very foreign to me, but yet speaks to my soul. So uh, to me, there was a natural uh, connection between using the stories of our people, stories of, of Puerto Rican you know, artists that were reconstructing places and times and people and ways of being that I just, I couldn't get enough of because I had been so, with all the reasons that Elizabeth just detailed, that I had been severed from, that the Colonial Project does that. And I was building my building that community building those voices so that i knew that the voice that i felt welling up within me was not alone it was never alone there was always the ancestors were always there speaking to me and to then so so that was one reason the other reason for using literature is because of, again back to the reasons that elizabeth described the, the things that we were able to get were stories, like stories can kind of pass. 
that they're not serious, right? They're fictional, but yet the really good storytellers, you know, I think about how Toni Morrison's books tell us more about white supremacy and slavery in the United States than what's in our history books in a more accurate and, and authentic and raw way. And I would say the same for Rosario Ferre and Esmeralda Santiago and Nicolás Amor, uh, all, and, and Pedro Juan Soto and so many others who are telling these stories in seemingly fictional ways, but they're speaking to us. And that would lead me, it was their stories that would then lead me back to the, the, you know, the Centro de, de Estudio Puerto Riqueño at CUNY to go into those archives and to find that history that was so hard to find elsewhere. The stories became the path that led me back to myself. Oof, the stories became the path that led me back. You're going to take me to church here in this podcast, and man, I'm not ready for that sentence. You know, th there's another um, there's another interesting sentence speaking of stories, and you talked about them being, you know, easy and easy to pass. Esmeralda Santiago, she has a really kind of challenging description of Puerto Ricans that, that you analyze as you look at some of her works. She does talk about Puerto Ricans as accomplices in our continued ca captivity, you know, uh, or, or you describe her work as revealing us as accomplices in our continued captivity. What do you mean by that? And, and, and if it's true, how do we be, uh, how do we subvert our own internal desire to stay in that captivity? Yeah. Um, I actually had a conversation with, Esmeralda Santiago. I was doing a book talk a couple of years ago at a church in Bedford and, and she lives in the area and she actually showed up, which was a bit, I was, I was thrilled, but also a bit terrified at that moment. And we had a wonderful conversation because I, it was actually, it was a, it was a dialogue because I, was wanting to be very careful about not making it seem as I was blaming the victim here. Uh, because her book, America's Dream, is really positioning Puerto Rico as a battered woman that is really not willing to make changes in her own life to remove herself from that situation. She allows things to happen to her that then lead her to different a different place and space, but not out of her own initiative. And the the point that I think that, that Esmeralda was making, again, that we, we spoke about it, was that that we do make choices. And that the choices aren't always the, you know, between a a good and bad. It's sometimes between a, a bad and a less bad. When we are in, you know, a, a state of oppression and that's not, that's not a real choice, but it's what I think what she was trying to say, it's better than not making a choice at all. Because at least in that, 
in that moment when you are choosing the less bad from the bad, you are beginning to develop some moral agency that will then perhaps lead to something else and then to something else. But if you don't make that step initially, then you are, you have resigned to not make any movement at all. And we can make some choices, even though they're not as, as, comprehensive or all you know all encompassing as perhaps the situation would require and in that sense we can be accomplices into our own captivity we allow ourselves to be sedated and yeah and and, estado libre asociado right yeah yeah and she uses the you know the the history of, of birth control sterilization as kind of a metaphor for that, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the placebo pills and birth control, you know, that, that when you're off of it, your, your body is kind of back to its processes that are, are not impeded by, you know, the, the artificial hormones. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not a knock against birth control. I'm not saying, but she's using that as a, as a way to say, this is, this is essentially what, I, what's happening to our, you know, to, to our community, to our, our political reality, because we've kind of been so sedated. Well, it pulls from another hidden history, right? There is a history of sterilization that the U.S. Absolutely. sterilized Puerto Rican women, right? So it's not a statement of birth control. It's a statement yeah. to critique, right? Of yeah colonial power being exerted on the womb in mm-hmm. Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of another one of these kind of accomplices, right? Uh, you know, I, I'm part of the diaspora and I don't want to inflame people, but right, this this new bill where, where they're reconsidering the status of Puerto Rico, it amazes me that the, the third option still available that's going to be on that vote will be the Estado Libre Asociado, the current colonial state. I don't know how that's still going to be available as an option, right? Oh, we can just keep the status quo. Why would we? Why would we keep the status mm-hmm. quo? Mm-hmm. Why is that even a viable option on the vote? Well, it's a viable option because it's it's part of what people have chosen over the years. And it's a viable option because it's an option that has um, voiced the interpretations of Puerto Ricans that have been made by the U.S. and by some of the very Puerto Ricans who have had something to gain by those U.S. interpretations. Mm -hmm. And that's important for us to look at, right? If I have something to gain. uh, So, for example, one of the the reasons uh, that Luis Muñoz Marín uh, lifted up was, oh, well, the island is not ready for um, independence. Well, based on what, Mm -hmm. right? Well, independence would not have been um, gainful to him. And there was actually a bill that was being passed to give the island its um, independence. And he blocked it. And then he started a narrative on the island telling people that Puerto Rico was not ready for that. And of course, one of the things that uh, was said is, well, you know, since we're not ready, what will happen is that we'll probably become communists like like Cuba, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, all of this, it's always being a narrative of fear yes. for the people. And because we, don't, we haven't had history, 
because we don't have all of these other pieces, when we go to choose, we don't have what we really need to make an informed choice. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to choose in the midst of all this that is taking time, that, that, that is taking place, and you don't have the history and you don't know all of the pieces, you bring back the usual choice of colonization. Yeah, the status quo. Mm -hmm. And that's where they feel comfortable. Yeah. So, Dr. Delgado, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm admittedly nervous to ask you, but it, it relates to this. Yes. Because, you know, Elizabeth just mentioned, if you don't know the history, if you don't know what's happening, right? If you don't know the authors and the stories that subvert some of the, the political narrative around Puerto Rico, you can continue in the status quo. And your book was a revelation to me. I mean, it really did prophesy freedom to me. I, I, I left your book ready to go to every march, be a part of every Puerto Rican club in the city. I, I mean, give me la bandera blanca y negra, I'm ready, right? Um, and, and it's a gift. It's a gift to Puerto Ricans and anyone thinking theologically about the colonial condition. But there's a catch. Mm -hmm. Your book is pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. um, not pretty. It's, it's very expensive, very. I might say. Yes. And um, as accessible as it is as a read, as compelling as it is in its use of stories, I saw that as a, as a challenge to any pastor who might get curious about the conversation we have and go tracking you down. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, your book is a decolonial theology, but that's a pretty colonial price tag. Yes, <laughs> it is. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your experience in getting this book published and, and why that price point might be what it is? Yeah. Well, thank you for raising that. I think it, it is exactly what we were talking before about, about moral agency and choices between bad and, and less bad. Uh, I think this would fall into that category. So, you know, when I, when I was um, finishing up the writing of this book, I, I reached out to, I would say, at least... 30 different publishing houses um, and at 30 different publishing houses, like in the realm of, you know, theology and religious studies and places that, and I'm not going to name any names. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here. Um, but I got rejection after rejection, after rejection, after rejection. To the point when I I thought this is something that is not never going to see the light of day, um, and 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 yet I felt so I I I felt that it, it needed to see the light of day. It it I wanted it to reach people. I I I wanted it to again working against the learned voicelessness in some way, the rejections that I received was a reconfirmation of that learned voicelessness of coloniality. And it was only because of a conversation I had to unrelated with, uh, with Jörg Rieger, who's a series, was a series. I didn't even know he was a series editor for, um, new approaches to religion and power with Paul Grave, I was sharing with him my frustration with getting 
my work published. And he, and then he said, well, do you know that I'm editing the series with Palgrave? And so that's really what led to Palgrave. And for me, it was like, well, how is it going to get out? Right. So in the, in the initial conversation with the editor, they shared with me that the hardcover price would be typical for, um, for institutions, right? It would come out first in hardcover and then it would be go to like a soft cover and then the soft cover price would be much less. So I said, oh, okay, I guess, you know, that's, I, I was hoping that it would get to soft cover, you know, sooner rather than the typical year that it takes to get there. And then when I realized that the that the soft cover price a year later was not very different than the hardcover. And I felt, you know, it, that I felt horrible about it. Um, and maybe that was just my naivete of not asking the right questions initially. But at that point, I really didn't have any other options because every other publishing house said no. It's a proof of that uh, voicelessness that you talked about. Thanks for sharing so honestly. I know that that's a hard question to tackle. And yeah. um, I even tried when it was published to get the publishing house to donate a certain percentage of the book to Hurricane Relief. And let, uh, let me just leave it there. I tried. Yeah. And I'll leave it there. We we or appreciate you, Emma. You know, I don't receive any any royalties from the sale of this book at all. Yeah. So. We appreciate the transparency because, mm -hmm. like I said, this book's important. Uh, that I mean, I'll say it twice for the, for the listener. This book is important. It was a gift to me in terms of that historical historical remembering and. You know, again, walking with some trepidation here, but uh, based on the timeline of your personal story in the book, I say you're about the age of my mom. And so it was like hearing the, the theological voice of, of my mom. And it, it was it, it has that kind of personal touch to Puerto Ricans who have suffered the 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 legacy of of dismembering and it has historical record in the in the fullness of that right of talking through the history and then the novels i mean it it is a gift and so the fact that we have to continue to push against some some system systematized assumptions about puerto ricans buying power capitalism i mean that's a whole another podcast but the fact that those things uh, cause this situation with this book to me is something that we're going to need to continue to press in with publishing houses. Mm -hmm. um, and it's true. This podcast, there are so many people who are now like, Oh, this podcast is so important. But, but when it comes to, to the dollars around the podcasting, well then there's a whole different kind of conversation yeah. mode. Yeah. Right. And so I hear that, you know, I want to ask one last question, one last heavy one. Uh, and we want to honor your time here. But you propose at the very end of your book, you're, you're conceiving of Puerto Rican identity. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we've had Cone give us a black liberation theology. We've had Virgilio Elizondo give us a kind of 
uh, Latinx, uh, mestiza, mestizo identity. This podcast is called the Mestizo Podcast in large part because the legacy of language that we inherit theologically, widely speaking in the U.S., comes from a more Mexican uh, uh, background with Elizondo and others giving us that language of mestizo, mestiza. But you propose at the very end of your book that we that we that we put together some words in a kind of funny way that that we 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 conceive of ourselves as a as a people rooted in mulatizaje, right? A kind of mulato mix hybridity and and including that mestizaje. Can you as as we end the the podcast here, can you tell us about how we might imagine ourselves um remembered with our Afro-Latino heritage, with that indigenous heritage, you know, remembering those pieces that are often um, severed, ignored, or erased, uh, how we might do that. Well, thank you for raising that. I, I, I wanted to, um, to really at least signal the importance. And I, and I, and I know that I didn't give as, in, as much attention in this book um, as as I I could have, and and I've received some critique about that, and I've I've uh, I've ex- I accept that, and I I actually I'm grateful for the critique that I've received, um, but it was my way of of trying to address the much needed um, attention to blackness to. Uh, not just our African heritage, as if that's something in the past, but our, but our Africanness. That you know, the, as Puerto Ricans, you know, we have we still succumb to internalized racism, to colorism, and to anti-black, white supremacist modes of being in the world. And I couldn't, for a couple of reasons. I'm I am a white Puerto Rican. It's hard for me to even say that, but that's I I can't be dishonest about the way that I present in the world. I'm grateful for my children who are, you know, this mixture. My 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 spouse is from the Congo, from Central Africa, DRC. My children are Congolese Puerto Ricans, and they identify as black. And I, I can't say to them that I am anything but a white Puerto Rican, and not be if I say anything other than that, then I am dismissing the way in which their own blackness implicates them in a white supremacist world in a way that it does not implicate me, regardless of whether my, 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 my abuela was mulata. Um, so I think we need to address that in our theology, not as separate from, because it is not separate from our coloniality as Puerto Ricans, but deeply embedded within it because you don't have the colonial project in Puerto Rico without white supremacy. It's it, it, no more than you would have this, the, the, you know, this colonial 
project of slavery in the United States without white supremacy. They're different modes of enacting that white supremacy, but they'd come from the same root. So that was my way to say, as theologians, we have a moral responsibility to address our own whiteness, to address the way white supremacy shows up, even as Puerto Ricans, even in that bill that's being presented, how is white supremacy showing up in the impromesa? How is white supremacy showing up in this new bill? How is white showing up in all of these, in, in our the, theological thinking and doing and preaching? Because if we don't attend to that, then we can talk decolonial, but we are not really being decolonial. Amen. Say it. Amen. Uh, before I close, Elizabeth, do you want to remark on that? I think that that's an important moment to, to hear your voice. I think that is what you're saying is a very important piece. It brings me back to looking at how many of our churches, especially when you say, what are we preaching? How many of our churches have um, only looked at one piece of things and they haven't looked at what are the raices, what are the roots of where some of these pieces come from, right? So some churches can be more conservative and that's fine. You can be conservative um, about life issues, etc. But you also have to be uh, looking out for, you have to be vigilant for what is the agenda that people outside of our community have when they're trying to um, gain our votes on a conservative agenda. That's right. But they're not look. But we are not looking at the other things that are being represented by those groups, right. and how those other pieces are not about life or about un unraveling the decolonial pieces for our communities. Mm -hmm. And from the very beginning, when missionaries came. We've been that that whole agenda of the white supremacy has very much been a part of how it's been mixed mm -hmm. with the gospel for us. Um, songs that we've sung, etc. It's been mixed. Yeah. Uh, the dreams that we've been told to have uh, the eschatological pieces that we've been taught. It's been very much mixed with those agendas and we've not done that critique because we've been taught that if we critique that we're critiquing the revelation no we're not we're critiquing a tradition yes. and interpretation and we have the right to come to those pieces and to do our own interpretation with the purpose of being decolonial yeah Amen. And that's an important piece for us. So thank you for recognizing no, it. Thank you. Yeah. Reimagining belonging. Shout out to Willie Jennings on that, mm -hmm. right? Hermana mm -hmm. Delgado, doctora, it has been a privilege. I, I feel like, uh, like Moses needing to take off my sandals and holy ground here with you and Elizabeth in the podcast. So thank you so much for the gift of your time and for the work that you have done in this book. 
Thank you for for being a leading example of what it means to think deeply about the Puerto Rican condition, both on the island and the di- and in the diaspora. Gracias, hermana, por por ser tan tan um, uh, tan una voz de líder, right? A voice of a leader in the movement. So thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you and and Elizabeth. It has been. Uh, it's been deeply inspiring. I think there's a po a, a poem welling up within me too. Um, hey, let, let's hear it so next time. <laughs> yeah, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I think I'll see you uh, over in the HTI conference. So I look forward to meeting you in person as well. Same here. I look forward to being there. Well, for the audience, let me tell you that the next episode of the Mestizo podcast will be uh, with Pastor David Swanson, author of Rediscipling the White Church. We're going to talk to him about his vision, uh, why he chooses the language of brother and sister over ally, and what it means to have fellowship with rediscipled white folk. Uh, let me tell you, he's the first white person we're having on the podcast. Uh, it was an interesting conversation. It's already been, it's, we've already had it, and uh, I can't wait for y'all to hear some of the interesting things that happened as he talks to Elizabeth and I. So you can expect that in the next episode. As always, if you have a question about the conversation we had with Dr. Delgado, you can leave us a message at 312-725-2995-312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, pregunta, uh, or your comments, and we'd love to have them at the end of the season. Uh, Dr. Delgado, is there any way that people can connect with you? Is there any way that you'd like to share uh, how they might follow you on Twitter, or maybe there's another platform that you use? Well, you know, I um, I actually, I used to be on Twitter and on Facebook, and I stopped, I actually gave those up for Lent this past year, and I haven't gone back. It, it was actually a, a, it was very freeing for me. And so I have to say, I'm really struggling to weave my way back. But um, I am still on Twitter, and my handle is um, D- at Dr. Teresa Delgado. Dr. Right. Teresa Delgado. Yeah. Dr. Teresa Delgado. Way, way to show strength of will to give it up for length and keep it up. Uh, also, hey, if you want to connect with her, another reason to go to St. John's University and get your That's, degree. Right? Yes, there it is. <laughs> and, and I can be I, I can be reached via uh, the St. John's uh, email address on the website. Hey, there you go. Bueno, Elizabeth, you get the final word. Let us all search out our roots. Let us make use of our cold anger as it is part of the spirit of the Lord that empowers us. Amen. Y con eso se acabó.